Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Ansaro, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. An unprecedented level of detail and robustness around interoperability standards is on its way, and on this episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with Dr. Donald Drucker, the former National Coordinator for Health Information Technology in the Department of Health and Human Services, about what the opportunities and responsibilities for payers are. The changes precipitated by rulemaking by the ONC in 2020 regarding the 21st Century Cures Act requirement regarding Application Programming Interfaces, or API. The new requirement will enable access to patient-level data across a broad population, allowing for more analysis that can inform clinical decisions, track those decisions to costs, and even influence future policy. Welcome to Managed Carecast, Dr. Rucker. It's an honor to have you. Thank you, Allison. So by way of introduction, as we were just talking about before we started uh, taping this, you've had a long career. And for people who are new to this, can you just give us a brief overview on the basics of interoperability and um, what you did uh, at the ONC before we get into the subject today? Sure. Uh- Interoperability has obviously been uh, one of the big, uh, to use a technical word, bugaboos in American healthcare. And uh, in 2016, Congress almost unanimously passed the 21st Century Cures Act. And in there is an entire section on interoperability. And what that um, required was really for Health and Human Services, that cabinet agency, and then the Office of the National Coordinator, which I um, was the national coordinator at from 2017 until the beginning of 2021, to um, really come up with um, a federal register type of rule that did two big things. One was application programming interfaces without special effort. So standardized interfaces to electronic medical records. And then the other big thing was um, a set of provisions around something called information blocking, which is that uh, this legislated that the patient has an absolute right to get their information electronically into electronic tools, i.e. smartphones these days, of their choice. And then at the same time, that that rule, the final rule was released um, in March of 2020, Uh, CMS also did a companion rule for payers um, that patients should be able to get their payer data. Uh, So that's the the absolute gist of um, the law and the rulemaking. When you were at ONC, and I heard you speak a couple of times, or you were in the news, it seemed like a lot of focus at the time was on the patient side. You know, Seema Burmer would talk about, you know, patients should have access to their data. Let's do away with fax machines, which I hate to point out are still here. Um, (laughs) 
Um, and now you're the chief strategy officer of a startup called One Up Health. Um, what does this mean for payers, specifically FIRE, um, which is, uh, let's see, let's see if I can remember this, FAIR. Wait, you say it because I'm going to miss it up. Uh, so just... FIRE um, is Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources. Right. And so the way to think about FIRE is we've had a lot of, over the years, a lot of, I would say, somewhat narrowly focused healthcare-specific interoperability standards that require um, a certain amount of the black arts of interoperability. Let's just, just call it that. What FIRE is, it's now about 10 years old exactly, is using the modern web standards to start communicating in healthcare rather than things that are fundamentally healthcare specific. So pretty much every app on your smartphone connects back to a server. And if you look at those little uh, lines in, for example, your browser, where you can see that, that data standard is something called JSON, JavaScript Object Notation. You don't need to know the, the acronyms. FIRE is the healthcare version of JSON, what, what your audience needs to, the, the insight they need to take away is, this is a standard computable um, uniform representation of the data um, in a modern way. And that it really solves a whole series of issues about the flow of information that have not really been tractable in the past. And that's what what fire is. Um, obviously, I, as national coordinator, spent all four years working on this. So it's um, you know no surprise that I, I'm continuing working on that. And joined recently joined a company called One Up Health that is actually taking that data standard, which is a standard that's not proprietary, but adding in an entire architecture to support the acquisition of this data, clinical claims data, in a scalable cloud platform that you can do, you know, sort of modern big data analytics on at the same time as you're using it for data transmission, which is an interesting juxtaposition, right? So some of the you know, payer requirements can be addressed with these APIs, uh, but there's a lot of infrastructure so payers can use this for analytic things that um, really require deep um, and rapid insight. When you say data transmission, do you mean, for instance, um, payers reporting to CMS on quality metrics and that sort of thing? Well, the, the, what I'm really talking about are application programming interfaces. So payer-to-payer -payer exchange or patient-to-payer, or maybe vice versa, payer-to-patient exchange. You can certainly do some quality things with it, but the real quality impetus here is, in fact, entirely rethinking what quality is, right? Our current quality metrics, which really go back, as, as I'm sure you're aware, about roughly 20 years to when Medicare, the laws were changed. So Medicare 
didn't have to pay any quote unquote willing provider, right? So that Medicare could start shopping for care. Uh, you know, the search for value, you know, Donald Berwick has talked about this probably four million, yeah. you know, four million times, as have many, many others. That got us onto this quality metric game, but it's a very narrow set of measures. Frankly, they're pretty heavily gamed. What was state of the art 20 years ago today with big data, AI, machine learning, pretty much every industry except healthcare looks at the quality and process improvement with these modern tools. And so this platform is really to make the combo of the clinical and claims data uniform and actually easily and readily computable for these insights. And that's where I think the quality business is going to go, both in the you know commercial covered lives and certainly over time in the federally covered lives. How does this become actionable? I mean, for instance, um, if you're looking at population health, how does this become something that um, a payer working in conjunction with a provider can act upon? Yeah, I mean, the beauty of these modern tools, right? And it's sort of a funny thing. They're called artificial intelligence or machine learning or both. Uh, the beauty of these tools is that you can get insights on all types of different things. So you're not, you're not stuck with um, a single you know, set of, of measures. So you can look at variance. You can, for example, look at prediction. And you can look at that prediction both in a financial way and in a clinical way. Right. So, for example, you could say, I want to figure out where prior off makes a difference, right? Including all the way out to outcomes. Um, and so you can look at the variance in, for example, what a payer does in prior authorization or what the outcomes are with different techniques, which will probably be a big issue because Congress. There's a lot of stuff floating around in Congress about mandating reporting payer performance on prior auth. I don't know, you've probably been following some of those things, right? So if you have to report your performance on prior auth, including how long it takes you. So there's a huge incentive then to be smart about what you're doing in prior auth and to be fast about it. So these techniques can do that. You know, there's some classic things just like fraud, where you can use these techniques to identify um, outliers. On the clinical side, I think you're going to find over time, this fuels a lot of decision support, right? Because you can look at the entirety of your patient population and see what the impacts are of literally every single activity, every test, every procedure. And you can follow that over time. We've never had, you know, in, in the world of today's quality measures, you can't even really touch those things. You can figure out maybe one narrow specific question, but you can't globally look at performance. How would this play out or should it play out 
in a situation where there's another pandemic, a similar situation to COVID-19. How can this be used to redirect resources, uh, streamline operations, get care to where it's needed most, that sort of thing? Well, when you look at the pandemic, and this may be a somewhat controversial point, frankly, but I think ultimately many of the challenges, and you could argue almost failures in the CDC acquisition of data was because it couldn't really track and generate a rich picture of the patient. And what I mean by that is they couldn't follow patients longitudinally. Um, now, there are a number of ways of doing that. You can do it with health information exchanges. You can do it with you know, the, the one-up platform. Obviously, if you're going to do pandemic tracking with um, a private product, unlike something that payers do, you know, there are public policy issues. But certainly, if you're looking at the payer point of view in the pandemic, one of the things you want to do is to be able to track individual patients over time, right? If you want to do you know, basic, basic questions like, for example, what are the patient's risk factors? What meds are they on? What meds worked? How long did um, it take from a positive test to getting a negative test? Did um, what sets of patients were reinfected? When were they reinfected? When were they vaccinated? Um, what were they, you know, what happened downstream from the vac vaccinations, right? All of those things, right, which are obviously, as we unfortunately all know in our daily lives, are very basic questions you can't actually answer without rich individualized tracking of patients, which then means you have to have all of the privacy and security things and patient identification. There are a lot of things when you say, tracking patients, all types of other major, major considerations come into play. But it, it's that rich clinical tracking that's at the heart of being effective in pandemic um, care and policy, frankly. How does this affect healthcare costs overall as these standards and methods are adopted, or could they? I believe it's actually going to lower healthcare costs. Now, you might say, well, we've never lowered healthcare costs, right? So, so anybody who tells you they're going to lower healthcare costs, you sort of have to look at it with, you know, you know, the classic jaundiced eye and and uh, maybe not explicitly saying really, but that sort of quizzical look on your face type of thing. So let me put it into context why I say that. So we, the reason healthcare is different than other things is because we don't, frankly, have a market economy, right? In a market economy, you have consumers and producers, and they set a, you know, jointly, there's a market clearing equilibrium price where the marginal utility of the consumer is equal to the marginal cost of the producer. This is like week two of econ one. In healthcare, we don't have that. We have payers and providers who um, the payers should represent the consumers, but you know, that's a challenge. And so what the payers 
including, you know, especially the federal payers have often done is they have sort of come up with these quality measures as a proxy for value, right? But even with that, um, and then come up with administratively set prices. But however you spin, however you spin that, it has not turned out to be really tying what we pay and what we get together efficiently. It just hasn't. I think everybody knows that. Everybody who pays for healthcare, everybody who's visited a doctor, a hospital knows that. These modern computational techniques, especially when you have it in an architecture where you can join claims and clinical, for the first time ever, will computationally allow you to correlate costs and claims over the entirety of the offered care and do that over time. Um, and for your audience, that's very powerful, I think, because for the first time ever, um, it will allow that richer conversation about whom payers want to contract with. Right now, if you're a payer in the United States, there's um, a couple different ways that you can contract, right? Who's in network, right? You can do it based on reputation, you know, world famous, whatever, pick your poison, Harvard, Hopkins, you know, Stanford, wherever. You can do it on performance on quality measures, which we just talked about as, as a fairly thin, sort of a fairly thin tool to, um, to do contracting on, right? I mean, you wouldn't buy a car based on, let's say, the color of the rear seat, the size of the tire, and how many cylinders it has. I mean, maybe those are good, but you'd look at a whole bunch of other things, right? If you bought a car, did it for healthcare. So, you know, one is reputation, two is quality measures. Three, often, as we know, payers are forced to have in network our various um, delightfully oligopolistic delivery systems. Um, it doesn't take a lot of travel through America to realize, um, and I think pretty much every payer realizes that there have been so many hospital mergers and the ultimate goal of these mergers is to be price setters to payers. Let's call a spade a spade here, right? That's what it is. Um, and then finally, so you can negotiate on that, but obviously these things are designed not to be negotiable. And then finally, you can just have sort of the proverbial skinny network, who's the lowest cost provider. In all four of those contracting ways, which as far as I can tell, are the only four bases in some mix, often, you know, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, in some mix, there is no real correlation between cost and quality. And now with these data, these modern data tools and modern data platforms, for the first time ever, um, you will computationally over the entirety of patients and populations be able to tie financial and clinical performance together. I think that's pretty powerful. When you say over the entirety of patients and 
data following patients around, how does this affect things when patients move from one pair to another? Or uh, right now we have the great resignation going on and about a little more than half of Americans have employer-based healthcare insurance. So how does that affect, say, my neighbor next door on an individual level? Yeah. All right. Well, so I simplified and so you, you caught me um, <laughs> on the simplification. So let me, um, let me dig in a little bit deeper. So clearly these data streams that I've just talked about, um, which also one of the things we did in the ONC rulemaking is the bulk fire API, um, which I encourage folks to look into. It's going to be available or required, I guess it's available. It's a little bit of an understatement. EHR vendors are gonna to have to support this and then you know, providers at the end of this calendar year for the US core data for interoperability, which is things like med list, problem list, allergies, notes. That data, unlike the individual data to your smartphone is available to patients on their HIPAA right of access. Same rule, same law. The population level data is actually covered by classic HIPAA, treatment payment operations. So those are signed contracts between payers and providers. Provider doesn't have to give that data. They're covered entities, you know, business associates maybe. That's a signed contract. There's nothing on demand there. Um, and it uses the treatment payment operations, HIPAA privacy provisions to get that data for those specific purposes. So at first blush, that's obviously just the individual payer provider combo. Um, but again, you know, in a lot of cases, that's a vast amount of information that has never had an application programming interface for you to get it. And then it's negotiation, but it gives payers a very rich way of negotiating. Now for the 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 second part of the question, which is, um, I, I guess in the commercial world, we call that churn, churn mm -hmm. um, right. you know, in a sort of, a, you know, maybe more retail sense. Um, some of the work that CMS has done and proposed on payer-to-payer -payer exchange, those data sharing things are, you know, presumably will, you know, happen. I know there's a little bit of a sort of hold on it. Um, and, you know, you might say, well, okay, if it's not immediately, there's not an immediate minute, it's going to happen. The, the picture here, I think, is to think about is what are the public pressures on the government in this rulemaking? And obviously, every time somebody resigns and can't get health insurance, these generate massive political pressures. Um, just massive political pressures. And so I think these things will happen because of that. Um, and everybody gets it. I mean, I, I'll share a little personal anecdote. So I was out skiing last week and um, it was out in Park City. It was a, a long lift, uh, super condors, a long lift. So I sat next to this, I'm guessing, two young women who were snowboarders, I'm a skier. And so we had about a 10 or 12 minute lift ride. 
And so we started chatting and, you know, what do you do for a living? I was describing one up and, and this, she had, I was actually trying to recruit her when I found out she was a software engineer, truth be told, <laughs> but. Um, Skiing's great for that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we got talking and she said she had resigned from her fintech company and uh, was now freelancing. And then she seemed pretty healthy to me. I don't know. And started complaining about not being able to get health insurance because um, she was freelancing. This, if 20, I, I don't know how old she was, I didn't ask, but I'm guessing somewhere between 22 and 25, you know, maybe fresh out of school. Um, sounded like, you know, she'd had one job. If those folks, I mean, this this is an issue for the entire population. So I think there's going to be a lot of pressure. And I think, frankly, Congress is going to pass all kinds of additional transparency laws. Um, and obviously, one of health, we're sort of, it, it's a side bet for us, but, um, you know, the ability to sort of merge claims and clinical data and provide it in real time APIs is, I think, I don't know, but I think is going to be part of um, these transparency requirements over time. As everyone knows, once it's in, once Congress starts writing stuff, all kinds of things get into the laws, right? You may think, gee, this is hard or it's impossible or we don't want to do it. But, you know, the public is so unhappy with American health care that I think you can be pretty much guaranteed there's going to be this constant churn at the edges until we figure out maybe some broader dynamic and rethinking about um, how we pay for health care. I know we're getting close to the end of our time. Is there anything else that um, you want to mention or that I forgot to ask? Well, I think, you know, I think we've covered a lot of things. Um, you know, these are exciting times. Um, you know, healthcare has been really sort of the laggard by far in using modern software. You know, we look at the rest of our lives. We go fly somewhere and have e-ticket and e-check-in and digital this and we know to a second what our you know flight is you know we know you know banking sports entertainment everything in the rest of our lives whether we sort of have on demand instantaneous information and um healthcare has been such a laggard on this that um you know there's a lot of pressure to to rethink modern, to think cloud, to think scalable. And then how do you do all the privacy and security, all these things? Um, they're exciting times for me. I wish it had happened earlier in my career, as you pointed out, I've been in this field a long <laughs> time, but um, I guess better late than never. So very exciting. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And this is really interesting. Thank you, Allison. Appreciate all right. the chance. All right, take care. Bye-bye. For all of us at AJMC, thanks for listening. To learn more about these issues, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com 
or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.